decades of poor research, a broken peer review system, false health and nutrition doctrines, inadequate regulation, and a culture dominated by powerful vested financial interests have combined to make the world's supermarkets into minefields of bad information and products that put our health, our lives, and our planet at risk. It's time to see beyond the two-for-one offers, the health aura products, and the shiny false promises on every shelf. It's time to let the real healing begin. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody and this Patterson Meta. Is reinventing and this the supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket. Hi, today I'm very excited to welcome the amazing author, speaker and podcaster, Jimmy Moore. Jimmy runs the super popular Live in La Vida Low Carb blog and his podcast is one of the longest running and top ranked health podcasts on iTunes. He's the international best-selling author of the books Keto Clarity and Cholesterol Clarity. And as a side note, when I want to share information with people on the subject of cholesterol or ketogenic diets, these are the books I give. I see Jimmy Moore as a walking galaxy of positively charged energy, information and generosity of spirit. Today, we're going to focus on the kind of role innocent-looking supermarket products are playing in the obesity and diabetes epidemics and other diseases of civilization. And knowing that the majority of people often have no choice but to shop routinely at convenient local supermarkets, we're going to discuss what kind of approaches to take to help make choices to protect yourself and your family. We'll also be talking about the issue of misleading labels and discussing a notable and famous brand that's definitely not providing what most people would expect from them. No matter what you touch when you enter a supermarket or even a health food store, it's time for you to start paying personal attention to the brand, the provider and the ingredients regardless of the implied offer on the front of the pack. So here we go, my recent discussion with the phenomenal Jimmy Moore, the role of supermarket products in the obesity epidemic, the dangers of pre-prepared meals, and why is it so important to start reading the small print on packaged goods in this episode called Surviving the Supermarket. Jimmy, thank you for being here and talking to me. I feel so nervous because you're such an experienced podcaster and I'm such a newbie. <laughs> Wow, I want to meet that guy that you're interviewing today. He sounds pretty cool. <laughs> he does sound cool. <laughs> like, yeah. Thank you very much for that generous uh, welcome. Yeah, oh, it's so it's so good to be able to talk to you about this, Jimmy. Because I'm probably talking to a, a slightly different audience than the one that you have been talking to traditionally. Mm -hmm. I'd like to go back a little bit and cover some of your story because you have this amazing story of your journey of weight loss and your journey back towards health. And I'd like to actually just cover a little bit of that to introduce it perhaps to new people and then to talk about what role products in the supermarket played in your 
health journey in in the process that you went through um, when when you were uh, suffering from ill health and obesity and uh, what you've done about that and I think eventually we'll uh, bring it back around to what you are actually doing if you go into a supermarket now and how you navigate it so if we could start off at just sort of talking a little bit about your journey yeah, I mean, it's been a long time ago now, but really not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. 2003, uh, the fall of 2003, I weighed 410 pounds. Oh, where is this airing? Is this? Uh, oh, it'll be everywhere. Everywhere. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to try to translate to kilos for you. 410, I believe, is about 190 kilos for yeah. international people listening, but 410 pounds, uh, three prescription medications for high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and breathing problems, uh, really huge size uh, shirts, 5XL shirts, size 62-inch waist pants. It was really not a fun situation. I was 32 years old. I had grown up um, pretty much eating junk food and junk food being kind of the norm for me. And you talk about the supermarket and the kinds of foods and how they contributed to me getting to become 410 pounds. They were a huge part of it, Coca-Cola not being the least of which, which right. by the time I reached 2003, I was probably guzzling somewhere around 16 cans of Coca-Cola every single day. Oh, my God. Um, I was a junk food junkie for sure. Uh, a carb addict, uh, crappy garbage is what I call it now. Yeah. And and I bought into it hook, line, and sinker. And unfortunately, it it almost killed me at a very young age. And now, 12 years later, I'm still trying to battle some of those demons from the past choices. But I'm in a lot better position today, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But it was at Christmas that year yeah. that I got a book, a diet book for Christmas as a present. Want to guess who from? <laughs> it was from my mother-in-law. Oh, bless her. So God bless her. She gave me diet books just about every Christmas uh, as a not-so-subtle <laughs> hint to her son-in-law, hey, you're fat, you need to lose some weight. And uh, she was right, I did. Uh, the unfortunate thing was all of the things I had ever tried before failed and failed miserably. I had um, weight gain uh, after losing a lot of weight on lots and lots and lots of uh, low fat type of diet. So I did. I fell into the whole snack wells thing. I fell into fat free everything being healthy for you. I looked at a bag of marshmallows and it says naturally fat free and i i bought into all those marketing gimmicks that they throw on those packages as don't you well they, know Melody. don't they as, as one of those people who's been involved in creating packaging for a long time it's yep. those those fat free naturally fat free packages are full of sugar and just terrifying yeah, and, and and the problem was sugar has gotten a free pass. Very rarely did you see 32 grams of sugar. You know, they're not bragging about the amount of sugar, but they're really not telling you. And it's, it's kind of like uh, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. They weren't quite telling the whole truth when they'd say naturally fat-free because that's true, but it also was sugar-full. And, uh, and that's something that nobody really paid attention to before Dr. Atkins came along and, and started touting that carbs were an issue. And that was the book that my mother-in-law had given me was Dr. Atkins' New Diet Revolution. Right. And I thought this guy was out of his mind, Melody. He said, yeah. eat less carbohydrates. And I'm going, wait, wait, wait. 
that's where you get your energy from. Every dietitian, everybody I've ever spoken to says that's the only way you can have energy is if you eat lots of carbs, they want you 60, 70% of your diet of whole grains and sugar and all these other carbs that are supposed to fuel your body and your brain. So yep. that was the first thing that kind of caught my attention. He wants you to eat less of these things that you're supposed to eat for energy. Okay, that doesn't make sense. Let's move to the next concept. Eat more fat? Right. This guy's a cardiologist, and he's telling people to eat the very thing that we know clogs arteries and gives you a heart attack. And yet, you know what? I had become so frustrated by all those try and fail, try and fail, try and fail attempts at low-fat, high-carb diets. Why not a low-carb, high-fat diet? and give it a go and see how I do. I was 410 pounds, three prescription medications, 32 years old. I had just watched my brother just a few years before that have a series of heart attacks within the span of a week that nearly killed him. It eventually did kill him at the age of 41, oh but he was 32 years old when that happened. And it kind of woke me up that I am going down that same path that he was. It ended up being heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and morbid obesity that killed him. Right. Um, and I didn't want to follow in those footsteps. And, and thankfully, I still am here today, I think, because of that great book that my mother-in-law uh, got me way back when. Right. And uh, unfortunately, Dr. Atkins still manages to be under attack pretty regularly oh, out yeah. there for that book. But hopefully, I think we're starting to see the turning of the tide on the recommendation to eat a high-carb diet. I do think that the focus Slowly. on the focus on sugar that we're seeing now, the trend against sugar, must eventually turn into a discussion on carbohydrates because well, that's the leading edge. It'll have to at some point because what people don't realize is, and there's this whole move now about reducing added sugars. And I'm going, look, guys, if we're going to really tackle this from a health perspective, added sugars is like the the cherry on top of the hot fudge sundae. You still got to deal with the hot fudge sundae. Okay, yeah, you've taken away the added sugar, but you still have to realize the sugar that's in foods naturally, even from natural sources is still going to impact your body and you can't get away from that reality. And yeah, I think this is a good first step focusing on sugar, but the ultimate step will be, hey, look, all carbs that turn to sugar in the body need to be addressed as well. So when you were eating this um, awful diet before you you got hold of Dr. Atkins' book, yep. um, did you feel like, uh, obviously, you would have had some thoughts that the Coca-Cola that you were drinking was not healthy? Were you aware of other products that were probably coming from the supermarket? I don't know. I'm looking at the standard American diet here, thinking pizza, that kind of thing. So, yeah, that uh, was a big one. Did you think Little that they were healthy? <laughs> well, to me, it wasn't about health. To me, um, I didn't ever give a damn about my health. I really didn't, honestly. Right. Um, and, and that was a sad uh, part, a sad testimony of the way I was grown up. Um, my mom was a single mom for most of my childhood. So what did she feed us? Cocoa Puffs and Coca-Cola and snack cakes and all of these things. Hamburger Helper was a big thing in our in our family. Oh, but it was like 90% lean meat. But we had that Hamburger Helper because it's a healthy meal, hearty meal, and canned corn and canned green beans and those biscuits. I mean, that was kind of the regular thing. So when I moved out of the house and went out on my own, did I just suddenly know how to eat well? No, I, I ate the way I was taught. 
Um, and then of course picked up bad habits in your twenties, you know, when you live by yourself until I, and even when I got married, um, you know, you just, you just buy things as you know, you know, if I'd grown up in a family that was farmers and all about, you know, real food and, and sourcing, you know, good local organic vegetables and good grass fed and pastured meats, uh, you know, I probably would have had a far different uh, metabolism today had I'd made those choices earlier. But I didn't. I didn't have that luxury of having that knowledge until I changed my life with Dr. Atkins' book. Would you say that the um, that the metabolic effects of the kind of food you were eating are in many ways permanent? Would you say that there there are permanent outcomes that you may never really recuperate from as a result of eating that way? Yeah, so there's this concept called insulin resistance. So after a while, um, think about it. Your your body, when you eat carbohydrates, the way the body's supposed to work is you have a rise in insulin to keep your blood sugar from going too high. And then that uh, comes back down when the insulin does its thing. But after a while, the insulin gets tired of doing that. Uh, right. When you barrage it with 16 cans of Coca-Cola every single day. So I do think some of the damage um, is going to be a lot harder to deal with. I'm not giving up that there is hope that you can fix some of that damage. But I mean, I did some really dastardly things to my body for 32 years of my life. And I've spent the last 12 trying to basically reverse a lot of those things. And I'm doing all sorts of things we're going to talk about at the end about my next project being about fasting and how that can possibly help heal some of this insulin resistance that I'm dealing with too. But I think for people like myself who, you know, they went through really a whole lot of years of really crappy garbage eating, it could be next to impossible to fully reverse all those effects. So the moral of this story is don't let that happen if you're still young. <laughs> right, exactly right. I look back at, and uh, over my own journey through morbid obesity and out the other side of that and think, oh, my God, if only I had known then what I yes. know now, how much pain and anguish I could have saved myself if I had been making wise choices. However, you know what, Melody? Yeah. I, I'm really happy that I struggle still. I'm really happy that I have to basically work harder than just about anybody to, to be healthy today, even now, even eating low carb, high fat, ketogenic, and even with some periods of fasting, even with all the things that I do, I'm not at the perfect weight. I'm not at the perfect uh, physique that people would say, oh, well, you've made it. But I don't care because I feel like I'm able to relate so much better to people in the midst of the struggle. There's people that will come to me that would never go to a Jillian Michaels, for example, would never go to somebody that's some perfect example um, of what a physique would look like if you're looking at somebody, you know, healthy. Yeah. Um, but I'm healthy and I want people to see, hey, look, you don't have to have that six pack abs. You don't have to be some magical, this is what you're supposed to look like. Um, you can be healthy without looking that way. And, and the relatability that I have with people because of that, I think is, is part of the reason why I've been so successful. Right. I absolutely agree with that. I also think that we have a bit of a problem in that people who are trying to lose weight and really don't know where to start keep on seeing images of of you know the post diet person who's returned mm -hmm. to perfect and I know that I personally have been unable to achieve 
the same body I had when I was 20. And maybe that's because I'm in my mid-50s and I'm never going to get back there. <laughs> well, that's a whole other story about hormones post-menopause. And so, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's amazing. And what's funny is I'm, I'm 44 now. I'm probably in better shape at the age of 44 than I was in my 20s. And so that's right. kind of the ironic thing. I have no place to get back to. This This is nirvana for me uh, yeah, in fantastic. terms of my life and, and my weight in my in my adulthood. This is the best it's been. That It's fantastic where you are. And we'll talk in a little bit about um, where you've come in the last few months, which is just very exciting. Um, but I do want to talk about when you instituted a ketogenic lifestyle, which I imagine was what you did after reading Dr. Atkins' book, you no doubt took steps to get into ketosis. What kind of struggle did you face in terms of what does that grocery shopping look like? Because I know that that first step of starting to strip out all the hidden sugars and the hidden carbohydrates and I think the realization that, oh my God, my life is saturated in this stuff. Um, it made it havoc in my life, that's for sure, actually going through all the stuff that I was buying and realizing yeah. it was everywhere. Yeah, I literally had to wipe out all the cupboards. I mean, everything in the cupboards uh, was just carbs, carbs, and more freaking carbs everywhere. <laughs> so uh, you have to, you know, basically clear out the cupboards and and put in the good stuff. Yeah, for me in 2004, um, I just was eating low carb. I didn't really focus in on ketogenic, which we can talk about here in a minute, the more specifics of what goes into a ketogenic diet. You yeah. can do Atkins and not be ketogenic. Uh, and later on, I did discover that you probably should try to pursue ketosis, uh, but we'll get into that in here in a minute. But in 2004, yeah, it was just a matter of choosing those foods that no longer um, had carbohydrates in high amounts in them. Um, you know, and of course, vegetables came into play. You know, people often say, well, you don't eat vegetables on an Atkins diet. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you do. I mean, you, you eat right. mostly the green leafy vegetables, eat the non-starchy vegetables, but yes, you get to eat fat with those vegetables, and that's the glorious right. thing. So real butter, real coconut oil, um, even lard and full-fat meats and cheeses and cream, all of that becomes your friend because they're devoid of the carbohydrates that are going to spike your blood sugar and insulin levels so you don't lead to that insulin resistance anymore. And then you're replacing those carbs with more fat, and so having higher fat foods um, and when I say fat, I mean real food-based fats, saturated fats, monounsaturated fats, really staying away from the polyunsaturated fats. So the vegetable oils, they're not your friend. Canola oil is not healthy. Mm. Corn oil is not healthy. None of those oils uh, that you see strewn across the grocery store shelves and they have the American Heart Association heart health symbol, and I'm sure it's uh, similar around the world. Uh, what, what's it in Australia? The the heart tick, or, or they've taken they've it away. They've recently gotten rid of it, thank God. Yeah, because, but they replaced it with something horrible, right? Well, uh, Australia now has um, a, a star system, but the star, that's, that's the right. star system is even worse. And yes, products <laughs> products that I work with are struggling because actually the the healthier products get lower star ratings yes. because they have natural healthy fats associated right. with them and then the really unhealthy stuff gets 
the top star rating. Because and see, if I was a consumer, fat. if I was a consumer, I would flip the star rating on its head. So anything that's got low stars, that's the good stuff. Anything with high stars, that's the bad stuff. And you probably would be right more times than not. Absolutely. Uh, certainly, uh, the big thing I think about the return to health uh, is about getting rid of the vast majority of processed and definitely the ultra processed foods. And yes. that's the place where all the bad stuff is hiding. Uh, otherwise, you have to read every label if you're going to. Really, you do have to read the labels and find the words that mean sugar, the 50 or yes. 60 terms. The O's, yeah. <laughs> yes, the was many Evaporated terms. cane juice. That was the one that tripped me up the most. Evaporated cane juice. I'm like, you mean sugar? <laughs> <laughs> It's exactly right. It's and of course, then you've got wheat hidden there, and oh and yeah, so and that's corn a derivatives, corn everywhere you go. So all of these processed foods are, and it's in places you don't think you're going to get it. I think a yeah. lot of people Ketchup. don't expect it. That's right. Soy ketchup's sauce. the one that tripped me out when I first started. I thought the sweetness in ketchup was naturally from the tomatoes, and I was shocked, horrified when I first started reading ingredients lists, not just the nutrition facts. That's Yeah, that's important, but go right to the ingredients list, and you see the very first ingredient here in America is high fructose corn syrup. I, I was very happy when I went to the UK last year, and I saw that on the same bottle of ketchup, Heinz ketchup, the first ingredient was actually sugar and not high fructose corn syrup, so at least they got a little bit better uh, right. doing the sugar instead of HFCS, but still, uh, I think that shocks a lot of people. What What did you say had sugar in it? Uh, I think there's wheat in, actually there's wheat in products like soy sauce. It's yes. places you don't expect, and uh, a lot of people think that these are actually ingredients as opposed to processed products of That's their right. own right. So that people are picking up ordinary products off the shelf and assuming that that is not something that's been super processed and got lots of ingredients added to it. And you really do have to, when you start to get the sugars and the carbs out of your diet, you really have to read every single label of every single thing you buy. You really do. Right. And, and the more you go to real food, as you say, the less that's an issue. If the things that you're buying don't have labels on them, you're ahead of the game. Well, and shopping at shop at uh, farmers markets, I think, is a great way to eat food without labels. I mean, uh, it, they're becoming more and more popular here in the states. Um, I know in Australia, when I was there, they were everywhere little farmers markets, and so shopping and 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 ba basically letting your dollars speak, uh, vote basically for what you want. The grocery stores will have no choice at some point but to listen to that consumer demand or go out of business. Exactly right. And in fact, people don't realize that supermarkets aren't there to provide them with healthy food. That not it, at all. It's not anywhere in their business description that they need to or want to provide you with healthy food. They are there to make a profit. And yeah. if their survival relies on providing you healthy food they will adapt to that That's or right. they'll go out of business if they That's if right. they fail to adapt and at the moment there's a lot of suspicious practices going on between supermarkets and with a lot of brands that are out there uh, we have the huge issue of the health halo and the products that are are 
presenting themselves as healthy products. You mean I, yogurt? Yeah, I, <laughs> Is that the big one? Yeah. <laughs> I'm on. I'm on a bit of a mission about yogurt lately. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's one it's of those really bad they categories. They have so many fat-free and low-fat here, and you can't find the full-fat, low-sugar versions hardly anywhere. You have to go to a specialty store like Whole Foods um, in order to find that kind. Although I hear it's getting better. I have people when I talk about this on podcasts, my listeners will write to me, well, they finally got it in Kroger in Minnesota. I'm like, okay, great. It needs to come down where I live. Cause it's not here yet. Exactly. I, I recommend to people, look, if you want to have yogurt, buy yourself a plain, preferably organic, full yes. fat yogurt, and then mix some berries some yep. organic berries or whatever you want to mix into it. At least you know then what what you've put in there. But these right. low fat yogurts, you still. Oh. I I shop in the supermarket. It's it's a part of my repertoire of grocery shopping. I buy very little <laughs> when I go in yeah. there. I you know it's a mostly personal care items and um, some mineral water and stuff like that. But you see them as you're lining up at the checkout. You see people who you can clearly tell that they think they've, they're making a healthy shopping because yeah. they're, they've bought loaf, they've got margarine, that, you know, or some, some uh. dairy-type spread. They've got canola oil. They've got low-fat yogurt. They've, oh, it, it's very whole upsetting. Whole-grain cereal. Yes, the whole grains, as you say, with the, you know, the healthy heart promise on the yep. front of the cereal so you can yep. see and in fact these people have probably been told to shop that way in many cases by their doctor That's or right. by their dietitian dietitian yep uh, so they're still getting that very very bad information and i noticed that the uh, in the uk the um eat well plate came out recently and they eat, actually eat, bad, eat badly plate <laughs> yes zoe harcomb has been doing a great job yes i love zoe's work on that it's um it and they i think they nearly halved the dairy recommendation and they're literally telling people to eat low fat spreads on bread as their breakfast and wow. it, it's absolutely appalling they seem to have taken a retrograde step when in fact so, there's this huge movement forward in the world so melody you've heard about the standard american diet being known as the sad diet yes think about the the standard uk diet that's the suck diet <laughs> <laughs> fantastic <laughs> That's really great. I heard that the other day. I was like, that's good. I'm using that. <laughs> <laughs> I will too now. <laughs> Fantastic. The um, um, other thing I think that really bothers me, and I saw you did a, a great piece on your blog just in the last couple of weeks um, yep. about products that are really misrepresenting their low carbness. Because, oh boy, yeah. Uh, and so I noticed that you were at a conference and you uh, – uh, we're talking to the Atkins Nutritionals people, which is very relevant because Atkins was your doorway into health. Yes, Atkins the diet was my doorway. That's right. So that now that product is not a low carb product in the even in the sense of Atkins and what Dr. Well, Atkins was. And and here's here's where they have basically gone off the rails since Dr. Atkins no longer owned the company. He sold it. Many, many years ago, of course, he's gone now, but even before his death, he had already sold the company 
And so the new owners of the company said, okay, we have this Atkins name. Let's just sell whatever product that we want. So they changed the formulations of the products and they started using the marketing games of net carbs, net effective carbs. You've heard all those yeah. marketing terms being in what you do. And so they would, they would add in all these sugar alcohols. They would add in all this fiber and then they would subtract every bit of all of those things and then pretend like they don't count at all. Right. But one thing that I've learned doing this a very long time is while they may not count as much as, say, a sugar or a grain carb would on your blood sugar, they still will raise your blood sugar. It just may take a little bit longer, which if you think about it, Melody, is even worse because at least with you know refined carbohydrates, that ultra-processed food, it shoots up really fast your blood sugar and then it shoots down really fast and it's over really fast. Whereas if you've got this slow rise and then it rises and rises and rises and it keeps rising over hours, that's right. much worse for you. Um, and your insulin's kind of going, hey, give me a break here. So that's the slow burn that you're promised, right? With with foods like uh, porridge and oatmeal is that you're going to get that slow rise over a long period of time. And you're but saying that's not a great up. idea. Well, it stays up. That's the problem for people, especially like myself with insulin resistance. And I'd say probably the vast majority of the people listening right now have some form of insulin resistance where, yeah, if your metabolism was healthy, that carb could probably be okay. And the slow rise would go up a little bit and then come back down. But when you're insulin resistance, uh, it actually will keep going up and up and up hours and hours after you ate it, which is partly why you start to get hungry again because your body's like screaming, hey, something's going on here. We need more food. And what you needed was something to blunt that blood sugar effect. Right. Now, just want to sort of circle back to the fact that statistically, most people are now in some stage of prediabetes. Yeah. Most yeah, people. About two thirds of the population uh, there's one third that just seems to, no matter what they do, they're okay. I don't know. They're yeah. genetically uh, gifted something. They just don't have to worry about this. Lucky but the them. other two thirds of us, yeah, I know, right? Uh, the other two thirds of us, you know, we have to battle and we're on varying degrees of insulin resistance, prediabetes, metabolic syndrome, whatever you want to call it. All of those things are kind of synonymous with, hey, you got to dial things in a lot more than others. So, uh, absolutely right. I, um, and I couldn't believe even myself, it took me such a long time to come to terms with the fact that I was pre-diabetic when nothing out there was really telling me that I was pre-diabetic. It was my own experience of discovering how I was reacting to carbohydrates and, well, and sugars. Part of, the issue too, part of the issue is medical doctors aren't up on the latest ranges that are, that are uh, uh, genuine. A lot of the ranges for things like your HGA1C level or HbA1c level um, and, and blood sugar and insulin levels, you know, they're they're of sick people. So right. I don't want the range of sick people. I want the range of what is optimal for my health. So they're telling people, oh, a 6.0 um, A1C is okay. No, it's not. 6.10, you're like right next to diabetes at that point. Right. Um, and so you've got to bring that down closer to five. And they don't tell you the best way to do that is to cut your carbs. And so I think we need to have better ranges 
which is why I think the mainstream medicine uh, is kind of getting left behind with all the naturopaths and the functional medicine practitioners that are out there that understand that there are better ranges that people should be aiming for. Uh, that's such a fantastic insight because clearly the system is designed for, for sick people. It's yes. not designed to help anybody stay healthy. And doctors right. really are not adequately trained. And the ones who, in fact, the ones who are doing a great job, they're teaching themselves. They are autodidacts yes. who are out there teaching themselves about health as compared to sickness. And those are the guys who are doing a great job, in my opinion. I agree. And I just recently went to my mainstream doctor here in South Carolina, and he ran a whole slew of tests for it. I'd get a physical a couple of times a year. And so I had a whole slew of tests run and they came back and he hardly said anything about the results other than my cholesterol. He thought it needed to be lower. And I said, no, it doesn't. Um, so, <laughs> so we moved on from that really quick. But he, there were a couple of things that I know were kind of out of whack and he didn't say a word about them. Now, the good thing is I know enough medical doctors that I can talk to about those things, right. but not everybody has that luxury. And I, I just wonder how many people, they get these tests run, their doctors run them because, hey, look, I ran all these tests and yet they never do anything with that information. Right. And I, actually, I've found within my own life and more people around me that we have to take personal responsibility for our That's own right. health. And then right. we have to choose the medical practitioner, if possible, that we're going to see and the pe find that team that we need to build around ourselves and access who we need to access for our for the purposes of our health. And my GP is there if I'm sick. I, I'm really only interested in my GP if I'm sick because the GP I have access to where I live is not really is not really trained to assist me to health. He's trained to help yeah. get me out of out of an infection or, or whatever. An acute sickness, not a Absolute. not a chronic one. Absolutely right. Yeah. I want to touch on um, just what you said about the. Uh, uh, sugar alcohols there in yes. foods because that's a, a whole issue that doesn't actually get talked about very much. Um, so I presume you're talking about ingredients like erythritol. Maltitol, Mal right. or, uh, sorbitol, xylitol, all of those tolls, yep. Yeah. Can you just give me a, a sort of an overview of your thoughts on those as ingredients? You know, it's evolved over time. Um, I have always been against maltitol because I think it's the worst of the worst. And anybody that's ever, especially you people that are diabetic and you look for diabetic friendly type of chocolates and candies and things like that to, to have as a treat, most of those have maltitol. And the reason they use maltitol as the primary sugar alcohol in a lot of these products is it's got a good mouthfeel. It tastes like sugar, corn syrup, so it acts really well in those products. And you would know more about this than me being a marketer on food. But the problem is it causes the most gastric distress. Yes. So if you eat it and eat it in a certain quantity, and that quantity will vary from person to person. Some people, it's as little as two little pieces. Other people, it might take five or six. But everybody eventually gets gastric distress, and it's not fun when you're dealing with that uh, those effects. But the thing is, I've always said, okay, uh, b before like the last few years, I've always said, okay, well, okay, it gives you the gastric distress, but at least you can subtract those carbs. Well, I'm changing my tune on that a bit in the past few years because I think those things 
do impact your blood sugar. And, and the only way you can tell is, is basically test for yourself. Again, become that empowered patient and test for yourself. If you don't think that Russell Stover chocolate that's made with maltitol in it is, is affecting you, then test your blood sugar before, test your blood sugar at one hour after and two hour after. And if at one hour it's gone way up, hello, that's probably a blood sugar response from those carbs, even from those uh, so-called sugar alcohols, which aren't supposed to impact your blood sugar. Now, keep in mind, not all uh, sugar alcohols are created equal. I do think some of the erythritols in its low amounts can be okay for certain purposes, but you don't want to eat it every day. Yeah, I totally agree with you on this. I personally believe that sweetness alone, wherever it comes from, even if it comes from a, a completely synthetic form, is capable of giving us an insulin response. And I know that just from my own body, that I can have an insulin response from something that ostensibly should not give me one, but the sweet taste seems to be enough to trick my body into an insulin response and I can feel yep. the effect of that. So, uh, and I, I really want to um, let people know that the reason they need to be concerned about the insulin response and their sugar, their blood sugar levels is because this is directly related to whether or not you're likely to develop some really serious diseases such as heart disease and diabetes. They're all interrelated, yep. Right, so that's a there's a metabolic syndrome that is a a group of diseases that seem to travel together, and all of those diseases appear to be linked very much to this high sugar, high carbohydrate lifestyle and this high processed food lifestyle. And I would say, by extension, high inflammation. Yes. Levels. Because I think once your blood sugar gets to a certain level and you're eating foods that would make your blood sugar and insulin spike, what's happening inside the body is you've got this fire that's just burning hot. And at some point, you've got to put out that fire because the body, the, the body cannot be in a disease state in the lack of inflammation. So if you eat, and this is why I sometimes tell people, aim to eat a low insulin, low inflammation diet. Whatever that is for you, and for most people, it's going to be a low-carb, high-fat diet, is going to lower that inflammation and lower the blood sugar and insulin levels um, because I think that's what's not talked about enough is that we are highly, highly inflamed because not just of our diet, some of our lifestyle choices as well, our high stress levels can actually increase inflammation as well. So chilling out a little bit, <laughs> take a yoga class, go play with your kids, whatever, um, all of those things can help lower the inflammation too, and that's truly the key to being healthy. It's taken me years and years and years to wrap my head around the, how deadly stress is, and it's yes. something I remember hearing about in my 20s. Uh, certainly I was aware that there was talk about stress being deadly, but it was just a bunch of words. It didn't really mean anything to me until I started to see my body falling apart. And yeah, in your 20s, you're invinci invincible. So. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely right. I wanted to just touch on also, um, I know when I walk into the, into the supermarket and I was in one just yesterday and 
when when they design a supermarket, um, they generally like you to walk in to an area that's sort of loaded up with lots of fruit and vegetables. It's, it, it, they're definitely trying to give us more of a healthy vibe when we walk into supermarkets. I'm very aware of the chemicals that are on all those vegetables. And so I walk in these days and I, uh, I'm sort of paraphrasing, um, I think it's Samuel Taylor Coleridge from the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner where he said, you know, water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. <laughs> That's how I feel when those I gaze out. Those things are perfect. That's my problem walking into a supermarket. The t- a tomato is not supposed to be that symmetrical. <laughs> it's absolutely Seriously, true. I mean, you got like six or eight there in a container and every single one of them are exactly the same size. They're exactly like oval in this shape. And I'm going, I want one that's got some knots on it and some bumps and bruises. And, you, you know, you, and, and that's kind of the beauty of going to the farmer's market. You see what real vegetables are supposed to look like and then go to a supermarket. And, yeah, it's, it's like water, water everywhere, but none to drink. It's like, I don't want to buy that stuff. I want to buy the good stuff. But now you travel a lot, Jimmy. So you must find yourself pretty regularly having to walk into some random supermarket and navigate that. And I'm kind of interested if you have any sort of general rules of thumb that you're applying when you do. You know, if I'm stuck or there's absolutely no whole foods or I'm not in Australia where you can literally get good food anywhere, um, if I'm traveling here in America uh, and I do have a few places I'm going to in the coming months that I'm like, I have no idea where I'm going to eat. But I I think that's where you just make the best choice that you can. So most of these supermarkets have some kind of a salad uh, bar or food bar. And you just basically make good choices. You you get the best that you can. If it's got a little bit of pesticide or whatever that they put on these things, um, you know, I just I make the choice of look, I've got to eat, so I'll make the best choice that I can. Um, and when I get home, I'll eat out of my garden, which I, we've just grown a sixteen foot by sixteen foot garden in our front yard. So we're real excited about all the food. Oh, we're gonna that's get this exciting. Year. There's yeah. nothing better than something straight out of your own garden. And and certainly Australians are pretty lucky because so much of the country has good growing weather, such yes. long growing seasons. And all the years that uh, we lived in Canada, it was very hard because you had a growing season of about eight weeks yes. <laughs> where, where I was <laughs> We're living. We're very lucky here in South Carolina. What is this, Christine? Mid-March, we planted and we'll probably get vegetation out of that till at least mid-September into October. October, depending on how how warm the weather stays. So uh, yeah, we're real lucky here, and we got backyard chickens, so we got e- fresh eggs coming in. So that's a way that you can beat the supermarket, make your own or grow your own food. Right. I, I absolutely think if you can grow it at home, do so. But I travel a lot. I find that um, I'm having to eat in restaurants a lot, so I yeah. uh, definitely try and make wise choices in restaurants. I know that I'm getting a lot of carbs when I travel well, and, relative to what I would normally have. Well, and a lot of these restaurants are now becoming very savvy to understanding. And not all of them, of course. You go to some and they just look at you like, what? <laughs> so, but, then, but then there are a lot of, a lot of others, and especially the more, um, the more expensive ones. Uh, they tend to understand that the people have, you know, they don't want to have grains. and They, ha- they know about celiac. Even though you're not celiac, you still want to eat that way. So, I mean, it's... It, the good thing is I think the sophistication is happening so that you can make better choices a whole lot better than even 10, 15 years ago. 
Absolutely. And I think that one of the rules that I would certainly have uh, with the supermarket and I do have is avoid ready-made meals if at all possible. If you, as you say, a salad bar is one thing, but if you go into the frozen section and pick out Ugh. a lasagna or something like no. that, these are the places where you're really going to start running into all those very nasty ingredients yes. that you can't identify. It's really it's it's imitation food that you're getting, whereas at least in the salad bar. Or you're getting something that's real food, as you say, even if it's still got a bit of chemical on it, it it's still real food. Yeah, I can't even remember the last time I bought a frozen meal of any kind. I know even the Atkins Nutritionals Company, they have uh, they have frozen meals, and I wouldn't touch those either. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely right. Jimmy, I'd like to talk a little bit about your uh, upcoming book, because I actually think that some of the work, I follow you very closely on Periscope. I think that the work you're doing on Periscope is amazing. Thank and, you. Um, I, I just think that you are in the process with this this fasting project that you've been doing. You're in the process of breaking through some kind of barrier that we've had in understanding what fasting can do for us. I think fasting has long been the other F word. Uh, and people, <laughs> they don't know how to handle when you start saying fasting, and I used to be the same way, Melody. I mean, I used to think fasting, and especially even like intermittent fasting, was about the stupidest thing you could do. I'm like, why would you purposely not eat? I don't understand. What What are you doing for your body? And that was when I was still learning all this stuff many, many years ago. But now that I realize, hey, look, your body deserves to have a break. And if you think about it from an ancestral standpoint, how did our ancestors live. They lived where they would have to go out in a fasted state and go hunting for food. Right. And what if they didn't get a kill today? Guess what? They didn't eat. They were what? <gasps> Fasting. And so then they go out the next day and they may have a little bit of vegetation here and there, but not enough to really sustain them. And they go out the next day and lo and behold, they kill a squirrel. So they have like a little bit of meat, but that's still kind of in a fasted state because it's very few calories from that. So then right. they go out the next day and they get a water buffalo. And so they're able to eat on that for the next week and they get their bellies full. And then guess what? It takes them a little bit, a little bit of time to go and find another big kill. So in between those big kills, they went maybe days, weeks, I dare say even months sometimes, probably between big kills where they got real nutrition. So this is biologically in our DNA for us to be fasting. Right. Um, and so it should not be mysterious. I think what makes it so mysterious is fasting is kind of a foreign concept in this day and age where food is readily available everywhere you turn. I mean, I literally could drive outside my driveway, go down one mile down the road, and there's at least 50 places I could go get food. Yeah. Now, think about it in caveman times. How many places did they have to go get food? Hey, we got to go down to the elephant. You know, No, there really wasn't that much place for them to do that. They had to go and, and hunt for it. And I think if most people around the world today had to go hunt for their own food and try to gather their food, I think there would be a whole shift in the thinking about this whole fasting thing. 
Well, I think a lot of people would understand that a little bit of fasting actually doesn't kill you, which is certainly what I discovered when I started doing intermittent fasting back in 2010. But what I'm noticing that you're doing, Jimmy, is it's a a little bit different from the kind of intermittent fasting being being presented by people like Dr. Michael Mosley with his 5-2. So tell me a little bit, just a little bit about what you're actually doing there. So because I've been ketogenic um, and basically low carb, moderate protein, high fat is what we're talking about for ketogenic. I've been ketogenic since 2012, so pretty actively keto. And uh, that enabled me to pretty naturally intermittent fast because when you're not hungry, when your insulin's under control, your blood sugar's under control, you can go hours upon hours without eating. So, you know, going 16, 18, even up to 24 hours without eating has been pretty regular uh, part of my life. And what I discovered was that wasn't enough for me. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe somebody like myself needs to fast for a little bit longer than that. So why don't we try, you know, a few days and see how I do. So then why don't I try a few more days? And so back in September, um, I had already been consulting with Dr. Jason Fung, a world-renowned fasting expert in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And uh, he and I decided we were going to write a book about fasting. And I said, hey, I want to try some of these longer fasts that you're putting patients on. So he said, the longest any patient's ever gone is 200 days in a row. Oh, my God. And I said, whoa. Well, this guy was very morbidly obese, had type 2 diabetes, was on you know prescription medications and insulin. I mean, he was really in bad shape. So not everybody needs to go on 200 days fasting. But it, he did say that people would stand to benefit from doing longer periods of fasting, so maybe a couple weeks at a time. So in September, I decided, okay, well, let's see what that feels like going Uh, I was trying to shoot for 21 days. I wanted to see, can I make it 21 days? I made it 17 and a half days. And I'll talk about why I didn't make it the full way here in a minute. But it was interesting because I had all those like misconceptions in my head of you will get hungry. You'll be so ravenous. um, You can't do it. And what I found, Melody, was when you, once you get – day one was easy for me because I was used to fasting one day. That wasn't a big deal. Day two was the hard part for me. Day two was when all those kind of cravings and things came on um, where I felt like I wanted to uh, to eat something. And if you can get through day two and maybe a little bit into day three, something pretty amazing happens. The hunger goes away. Right. And that shocks people. They're like, well, h- how does that happen? If you're that hungry on day two and three, what you don't realize is your body starts tapping into your fat stores. So if you have extra fat on your body, you're going to lose that fat because it's going to become fuel for your body. And that's the way our bodies are are meant to be fueled. I mean, think about it. Why did the fat accumulate there in, to begin with? Think about it from an ancestral uh, position again, when they had periods of fasting uh, or feasting, they would get a little bit fat and, and fatten up. And the reason they did that, their bodies did that, was they knew it would get, be good reserve fuel for when they started fasting again. So our right. bodies are the same way. When you fast, you're actually allowing the release of those stored uh, fuel sources, and that's what's happening during fasting. Now, one of the complaints that people have is, well, you'll just gain back all the weight that you lose once you get off of the fast. And that has not been my experience when I've been doing these fasts. Now, Dr. Fung says you got to do some things after the fast to kind of keep those losses going. 
things like alternate day fasting where you eat on Monday, don't eat Tuesday, eat on Wednesday. So you kind of have to keep priming it, so to speak. And the more insulin resistant you are, the more you need to do those kinds of things. So I've done about four or five of these uh, organized fast. I got a few more that I'm working on, although in the midst of writing a book, it's not recommended to fast because <laughs> it's stressful enough. You don't need to add <laughs> another stress. But Did you but find it I'm, stressful, Jimmy, the actual, the period of fasting? Where, what, what was the, the greatest number of days that you fasted? Yeah, so the 17 and a half days in a row is the longest that I did. In the month of January, I did do 28 of 31 days. So I did 12 days and then I took a day off, um, a few more days, took a day off and then a long period, like six, seven, eight days, took a day off and then the rest of the month. So, um, the thing that messed me up the most melody and, and it's an interesting concept. I would love to see some research on someday. I found that when I got stressed, like from travel or some, something was going on in my life that caused increased stress that increased my hunger. And I noticed it first in my blood sugar levels because I'm testing my blood sugar, my blood ketones, my weight, and all these kind of little markers. And I noticed that my blood sugar would go up on these days that I had this stress. And when the blood sugar went up, it was just downhill from there. I would get so hungry. I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta eat. And I promised my wife, Christine, if I got, you know, shaky and jittery and I needed to eat that I would eat. So, uh, I'm I'm an obedient husband and I will do that. Uh, (laughs) So, that that's kind of what what messed me up on that 17 and a half days we were on a trip in Myrtle Beach South Carolina uh right in the midst of that and i like i said i was trying to make it 21 days but we were having a good time and even the happy stress uh right. kicked in this hunger and and people are thinking stress is oh you're worried about stuff sometimes stress is you're having a good time and that's stressful but in a good way but it still physiologically impacted me so i'm i'm learning so much about this whole fasting concept. And I'm real excited about fasting clarity. We're going to try to put a lot of concepts in there that will demystify this because it's really not as mystical as think people might think. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's actually, it's a, an amazing tool to use for your health, for reducing inflammation, as we were talking about before, and losing fat. I think there's a component there. Certainly my own thinking is that there's an adrenal component that needs to be taken into account. I know that a lot of people, myself included, uh, have with a stressful lifestyle and having developed obesity, our adrenals are quite fatigued. And of course, the regular medical profession don't recognize adrenal fatigue. They don't even know what that is. It is a thing. And it's that, I think it's that uh, fatigued adrenals that really they're under pressure the minute any stress comes along they are there to help you deal with stress if you yep. it, when they take the adrenals out of animals uh, a, a one degree change in temperature will kill the animal because a yep. one degree cha- is changes stress and that tiny yep. stress will kill us so if your adrenals are really fatigued I just wonder if there's an adrenal component that is uh, kicking in with at the same time as the fasting. I do think that one of the reasons I haven't yet personally gone back to fasting since uh, 2010 is that I think my adrenals were under a lot of stress from my career, my career, very, uh, very stressful career. 
And um, certainly um, they have, my adrenals have crashed a few times in my life. And I just think I needed to heal my adrenals before I could go back to fasting. It's a sort of a sixth sense I have is that I need my adrenals to be a little bit well. And and that's such a good point, Melody. I'm glad you brought that out, that this isn't something willy-nilly to just go into. Make sure that all of those hormonal issues are under control. And if you're underweight, please don't ever fast. You don't need to fast. Um, You could actually cause some harm if you start fasting and you're underweight. So, uh, yeah, I think one of the things we're going to try to make very clear in Fasting Clarity is who this is for – uh, it's going to be for that two-thirds of the population we talked about earlier that are insulin resistant uh, primarily. They're going to be the ones that will see the best benefit from this. Um, and and the, the main thing is it's not going to harm you. That's the thing that we're going to really try to hammer right. home. This is not a harmful thing. No matter you know how much weeping and gnashing of teeth you'll hear from people <laughs> about this other F word, it's definitely not going to hurt you. Right. One thing I would add is that being menopausal, and I was very much menopausal when I did uh, my year of intermittent fasting, it was um, menopause puts a lot of stress on your adrenals with women as the ovaries start to shut down during menopause. The adrenals actually start to take up some of the production in the short term of the same hormones that the ovaries were producing so now if you have a stressful life already suddenly you're in menopause and your adrenals are working even harder because they're trying to produce the uh, traditional ovarian hormones such as estrogen so um, now you uh, you have stressed adrenals and if you undertake anything you want to really work with some kind of a health practitioner if you're menopausal just to make sure that you're not over stressing your adrenals during that process i think that's probably really important for for women for sure for sure jimmy i want to thank you so much for joining me today i I cannot express to you how exciting it is to talk to you (laughs) (laughs) Such an amazing story, so much information and um, uh, just such a fantastic vibe that you bring. So uh, I thank you again. Uh, Jimmy's uh, fantastic books are, once again, The Ketogenic Cookbook, Keto Clarity and Cholesterol Clarity. And the new book coming out is called Fasting Clarity, and that will be later on in 2016. And make sure you visit Jimmy's website, liveinlavidalowcarb.com. There'll be a link to it here. And uh, listen to some of his amazing podcasts. There's so many to choose from. Thank you very much, Jimmy. Did I tell you I'm coming to Australia again? No, you didn't. Yeah, so I'm the low-carb down-under people, which I've been very privileged to be there in, uh, what was it, Christine, 2012 and 2014 when we've been there before. They've invited me. They're doing a low-carb cruise coming up, uh, uh, what is it, September 13th. Uh, Fantastic. Departing out of the port of Brisbane, the Pacific Dawn boat, and um, lowcarbdownunder.com.au if you want to find out information. But I'll be there Dr. Gary Fetke, Dr. Rod Taylor, Peter Bruckner, Jeff Gerber, a lot of different people will be there. So real excited to come back to Australia. Wow, that's fantastic. I might see if I can make it myself. <laughs> We'd love that. Fantastic. Thank you once again, Jimmy. Thank you. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. And this is reinventing the supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket.